This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 70. However, in terms of bringing stakeholders along, before you do that, you have to understand whether or not you are capable of successfully executing whatever the risk you're taking actually is. Because in some cases, it's just never going to work and it has nothing to do with how good or bad a salesperson you are. It's because the culture will reject it. Understanding what your culture will accept and how I was talking to you all our CEO last Monday, and I reminded him of some feedback he gave me many years ago. And I said, this is the most favorite feedback you've given me as long as I've known you. He said, what is that? And I said, you told me you push things right to the edge, just right to the edge. There is no space left. And I took that as a compliment. I don't know if he meant it. I was like, but I did. But the only way I can do that is I deeply understand the company, the culture, and our leaders. Why should HR take more calculated risks? How can taking calculated risks increase HR's impact? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. My guest this week is Rhonda Morris. Rhonda is the Chief Human Resources Officer for Chevron Corporation, a position she's held since 2016. And in this role, Rhonda is responsible for shaping and driving Chevron's people and culture strategy for a workforce of over 40,000 team members. Prior to 2016, Rhonda held several roles in increasing responsibility in human resources, global marketing, and international products at Chevron. And in 2021, Rhonda was inducted as a fellow in the National Academy of Human Resources, the highest honor granted in the HR profession. Rhonda is also passionate about giving back to the community and serves on the boards of the United Negro College Fund and the Board of Opportunity at Work, a nonprofit organization designed to rewrite the labor market. But what really impressed me with my conversation with Rhonda was that throughout her entire career, she has stayed true to who she is and has found a way to be her authentic self. I really enjoyed my conversation, and I know you will too, as Rhonda and I discussed what she learned from her time owning a P&L and how it made her a better HR leader, the importance of asking for help and not believing you have all the answers, how she leverages her own personal board of directors to continue to learn and develop as a leader, why she believes HR needs to take more calculated risks. The question every HR leader should ask before trying to gain the buy-in of their business leaders and why HR leaders need to practice other thinking to increase their impact and much more. Rhonda, welcome to the Future of HR. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on the podcast. We're so delighted to talk with you today. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a little while because You've had an incredible career at Chevron. In fact, you spent your entire career at the company except for a two-year-and-a-half period early in your career when you left and then you came back. So we're going to talk a little bit more about your career because it's really unique and I think important for other HR leaders to hear. But first, I want to know, tell me more about why you came back to Chevron early in your career and what has kept you there ever since. You have recently started talking about the fact that one of my least favorite questions that I get asked by uh, students or people I encounter is how long have you worked for the company? Because 
I have been here over half my life. And I also don't like the question of why did you leave? Why did you come back? Because I've been working on refining my answer to that literally for years and keeping it short. But your specific question was, why did I come back? It's a fascinating story. And I, in fact, have a piece of paper that's 25 years old that has a list of the reasons I came back to Chevron. And at the very top of it, it was, what does Rhonda want? Because I spent five years at Chevron. I spent two and a half years working for haagen ice cream before I decided that, and I only left haagen ice cream because I was traveling 80% of the time. I had a great boss. I learned a lot. It was a completely different industry. But I thought deeply about what is it I want in a position. And I, I actually have this piece of paper and I can tell you, I go back and I reflect on it quite a bit. So number one was I really like challenging work in areas where I can learn and grow and develop. Number two, I love working with really smart people. There are smart people all over Chevron. I wanted a changing dynamic environment. At the time, I had some uh, development areas I really wanted to focus on. One was strategy and project work. And at the time, I hadn't managed a large group of people, so I wanted to be a supervisor. I have this one note that says, I don't want to change. I don't want to go to an environment that's going to cause me to become a different person. And it's really ironic because tomorrow night, I'm having dinner with one of my direct reports who joined the company 25 years ago. It's her 25-year service anniversary. And last year, she actually told me, she said, Rhonda, you have not changed. I don't know how you've done this. I've seen you go through all types of different jobs, but you are the same person that you were when I first worked for you. In fact, I was her first supervisor 25 years ago. It's really cool. I get to celebrate this anniversary with her. I have a note that says, I want an adventure, and I have had an adventurous career. Two last items are the assumption of more responsibility and the recognition that this is daunting and a little bit scary. And the last item was, I want to make sure I have a healthy outside life. And that involves sports, exercise, and a social life. When I made the decision to leave Pillsbury, I actually had about four or five job offers. One of them was to come back to Chevron. And I really couldn't believe it because I made this little matrix. I don't have the matrix. I have my notes, but I don't have my matrix. And I scored every job offer I had. And Chevron came out number one, no matter when I did my assessment. And I've been back ever since. Well, such a thoughtful response. And I love that you still have that piece of paper 25 years in the future because it's a nice window in time and how you thought about it. And you know what struck me about that list? But what wasn't on that list, Rhonda, was I want more money. It wasn't about the material things. It was about people, responsibility, making an impact. That's tremendous. And I can totally see why you would come back. Well, there's one other item I forgot to mention, and this made it on my matrix. It's not on this list. And I want to work for a company that's a good corporate citizen. And Chevron happens to be, I believe, one of the best corporate citizens. I used to say in America until I was on a business trip in West Africa. And one of my coworkers told me Chevron is one of the best corporate citizens in the world. I believe deeply in giving back in communities where we work and operate. I've been on nonprofit boards for almost three decades and the company supports that. So that's important to me. That's really important. And I think that's a, another great reason that you came back to Chevron. But what's interesting is that you came back to Chevron. And then I think what's really unique about your career journey is that you actually moved out of HR for about seven years. And during that time, you held several important P&L leadership responsibility roles in the European fuel business. 
In fact, your last position before transitioning back into HR was Vice President International Products Europe. That is incredible, Rhonda. So you may have not changed as a person, but you must have changed your leadership style. You must have had to learn things. Tell us more about that experience of owning a PNL and how it impacted your approach to HR. I get asked a question a lot of how hard was that. It wasn't that hard at all. And I think and it wasn't hard because I'm this brilliant person. One of the things we don't talk about are the transferable skills HR people have, whether it's influencing, whether it's negotiation skills. And those are muscles that in almost every HR job you have that you're constantly building. And I didn't start the transition. I had three different jobs when I was working in Europe. I started in a marketing director job. I found and I left a role as the HR manager for our marketing business globally to go to the marketing director role. And we were standardizing a lot of marketing processes around the world with our three brands, Texaco, Caltex, and Chevron. And I had learned being part of this marketing leadership team what all these processes were. I understood areas where we had pain points and the marketing leadership team was actually a group that nominated me to go do this role. And there were a lot of similarities to standardizing processes in the HR function. So I was really doing the same thing, but for a different kind of work stream. That morphed into having an opportunity to take on a PL role because our European fuels business was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And the business was deemed not as strategic as some other areas where we had opportunity for higher returns. As the portfolio was getting smaller, the gentleman I was working for decided he wanted to do a bigger role and he ended up leaving the company. And I raised my hand and said, hey, I'm interested in taking on assignment. And I was really fortunate because I was able to do that. It came with some challenges. I had a lot of people reporting to me who knew a lot more than I did. And that was the first experience I'd ever had where my direct reports had more subject matter expertise about pretty much everything, whether it was safety, whether it was commercial agreements. It was very humbling. I had to learn, ask a lot of questions, keep testing my knowledge. And it taught me that it's okay to ask for help. That's something I think is really, really important. And I learned that by asking for help from a teacher. And if you want to know that story, I'm happy to share that one. But I learned a lot about our business in, in great detail. And I learned a lot about the importance and focus we have on, on safety because we operate in areas where there's huge potential risk with transporting products or manufacturing products. It sensitized me to what a lot of our business leaders go through who are in those types of roles now. I do want to hear the story about the teacher and let's go there first. And then I've got a couple more questions about this because it's really, it's really incredible. Number one, that you raise your hand, took this opportunity by the business, asked for more responsibility and really put yourself in a situation that a lot of people wouldn't because you didn't know the fuel business. So asking for help must have been a core to that. Tell us more about that great story and the teacher. I was always a competitive little kid and I wanted to be the smartest person in my class. I did that from, I don't know, kindergarten to eighth grade. I went to Catholic school. When I was in eighth grade, my, one of my goals was I wanted this general excellence award, which meant you're the smartest person in your class, graduate from eighth grade. So I get this. Then I go to high school and I remember very vividly, almost like it was yesterday, sitting in algebra in my algebra class. It was like sitting in a class where a foreign language that you never heard of was being taught. And I was terrified. I had not been taught algebra at my prior school. I just sat there and I kept thinking, please don't call on me. Please don't call on me because I couldn't answer any of the questions. 
And finally, I asked my teacher, Mrs. Fulby, if she would help me catch up. And this teacher spent every day after school with me for about two months to help me catch up and learn what I hadn't learned at my previous school. That taught me, again, that it's okay if you don't know to approach someone and ask them to help you. Another reason why I enjoy working at Chevron is I have not once, for over 30 years I've been here, asked one of my coworkers at any level in this company, can you help me? And the person said no. If you ask or if you say, I need your help, they're like magic words. And people will stop and they will help you. That's a great story. And really, just let's all really thank our teachers who do so much for us growing up. And I think you sharing your stories is so impactful. So thank you for sharing that, Rhonda. I'm not surprised you're going for excellence. So I don't think you've changed that much. I can see that that still is, is part of your goal, even a few years later. Talking about when you didn't have subject matter expertise, and you talked about this a little bit, I think one of the challenges sometimes is not so much that you have to ask questions, but how do you maintain credibility when you aren't the subject matter expertise? How did you guide the team, but then still be able to be vulnerable to say, I'm not sure I know exactly the right answer to your team? One is acknowledging the expertise of others first. Two, I ask a lot of questions. It's funny, when I came back to the HR function seven years later, I had this fascinating experience with the new HR team I was leading. And one of my direct reports told me, she said, you don't trust us. And I said, well, what makes you think I don't trust you? And she said, you ask a lot of questions and we feel like you're questioning what we have done and what we're doing. And I said, asking questions is because I don't know, not because I don't trust you. So I always feel really good when I'm working with people who feel really okay telling you what they really think. Same We don't think you trust us. That's a big deal. And then being able to address that, I think, is even a bigger deal. So being pretty open about what you know and what you don't know. I believe in having a personal board of directors of every job. I've had my own personal board of directors, and these are people who have expertise in areas that I do not. They are position seniority level agnostic. Like right now, I have on my board of directors an IT person who's teaching me how to use chat GPT. And I don't care that he knows I have no idea what I'm doing and I tell him what I'm thinking and he works with me on this. And so when you're managing a group of people who know the acknowledgement that you don't know everything, I think is very powerful. The acknowledgement and asking someone, can you teach me what you know, is also very powerful. And it also helps you continue to get better. And I mentioned earlier the importance of learning and growing, and that helps me learn and grow. I don't think I'll ever stop learning and growing from others. That's such great advice, Rhonda. When you had the P&L, how did you view the HR service offering? Did it shift your mindset around what good HR support looked like? Or were you like the worst nightmare for HR because you knew what good looked like and you were saying to, hey... I should be getting this. I should be getting that. What was that like coming from HR now into business and expecting amazing service? I was all of the above. I was a nightmare. I understood the value of having really good HR business partners in our company. Any business partner who's supporting any of our businesses usually sits on a business leadership team. 
how the depth of understanding that person may or may not have about what's actually going on varies. And being on the other side of that, I think one of the most powerful things for me in my current job is I have been a customer of the HR function. I have been the recipient and I was customer of the HR function in another country, which adds a whole nother level of complexity. So understanding how whatever it is you're trying to execute, any process, any leadership team or leader development program, I have deep sensitivity to how is this going to be received by the person who it's being delivered to. And I believe in executing in partnership with the business so that they understand. We completed a four-year workday deployment during the pandemic in two years. And part of that was because of the level around the world in 55 countries of business engagement as we went country by country by country. We didn't do it without them. We did it with a very tight partnership and alignment with them. And I think I would have thought through how to do that, how to execute a massive IT change. We went from probably, I think it was 14 or 15 disparate instances of SAP around the world. And some surprises, we had some instances we didn't even know existed until one. But we did it quickly because we partnered with the business. Certainly one of the hallmarks of your career has been your ability to take calculated risks. But you also believe HR should be taking calculated risks. Why do you believe this and what does it look like in practice? I love learning from failure, preferably not my own. (laughs) I am a deep student of why things work and kind of why they don't work. I like taking risks because I also recognize what do they call them? Reversible decisions. There are a lot more reversible decisions than we think there are. And I'll give you an interesting example. Now, we have an internal television show called Business Casual. I am the host of this internal television show. And we have a studio audience made up of employees. And we have guests who, by and large, are employees. And the topics are things like mental health and well-being. We did one on career development. We had one on our people strategy. We've had one on on leadership. And the reason this started is because during the pandemic, we were doing a lot of ask me anything leader engagements on video. And I think our our workforce got fatigued by this setup. And we're thinking of how do we continue engaging with the workforce, but do it in a different way. My communications manager said, well, let's pursue this idea. And I thought, well, that's different and interesting. I've never hosted it talk show before. I am an introvert, so you can only imagine that this is not number one in my list of things to do. But it is so much fun. It is absolutely fascinating. And I was asked a question by CNBC, believe it or not, because they actually helped us design the set. I belong to the CNBC Workforce Executive Council, and our set was actually backwards. And so that provided us, they gave us some really good feedback. They asked me later, well, how did you sell this idea to your CEO. And I sat back and I thought about it, JP, and I thought, I didn't. I just did this because I know he has faith and confidence in the things that I am doing to support our employees and their growth and their development and how we engage with them. And he also knows if I'm doing something that's not working, I'm just going to not do it again. We did one episode and it was a flop. We would stop. We say, okay, well, we tried that and it didn't work. Let's think through something else. That, I'm not afraid of things kind of not working, but I am always fascinated by understanding, well, why? And our TV show's not perfect. It's too long right now. People stop watching at the 20-minute mark. I think the content's interesting, but I also recognize people have time to watch something that's like 30 or 40 minutes. So we're now thinking through, if we keep doing this, 
how do we make it shorter or in bite-sized pieces? What a great way to not only have communication, but engagement and visibility and transparency. And so are the questions scripted or no? no? So no, it's not scripted. And what I've been incredibly impressed by is how honest employees are. And there's a lot of power in employees learning from each other because 35% of our workforce, for example, cannot work remotely. We've got people on ships, offshore platforms and terminals, refineries, et cetera. And I talk about that a lot, but in the first show we did, we had in the audience, and I didn't even know he was there. We had one of our employees who worked on an offshore platform and he talked about what his work was like during COVID. And so to hear that from someone who lived through it versus a leader who's saying, be sensitive to your peers, can't work remotely, is much powerful. Second story I would share with you, and this is one of my favorite ones. There was a young man who was in the second filming who said, I have been with the company for just a few months and I don't have any friends what can I do to meet people in the company? I talked to him about joining um, employee networks and I said, there are 30 people in this audience. So you have now 29 friends who you've had this shared experience with. So make sure you keep in touch with them. That's not the end of the story. A peer of mine who I would describe as giving me, he's exceptional at giving feedback and always has been, called me on Microsoft Teams one day. He's overly animated. He runs our midstream business and he said, I just watched your show. And then he runs through all the things he thought I did well and some things I could do better. And he said, but guess what? That young man who was in the audience who said he doesn't have any friends. I was in the cafeteria and he was eating lunch by himself. And I went over and I asked him if I could have lunch with him. This young man had no idea who my colleague Colin was and he worked in his organization. So this young man's on this show, talks about not having friends. And as a result of that, ends up meeting the head of the organization that he works in. So I sent him a little note and said, hey, I understand you had an interesting lunch today. So it's really helping us build connective tissue in a creative and a different way. Yeah, I love it. What a great example. What a great way to build culture and engagement. And I think from a leadership team, for your, whoever the guests are, yourself being up there and be able to answer these questions really transparently off the cuff just shows a lot of not only courage. But honestly, it just shows how great an organization Chevron is because a lot of times as leaders, we might hide behind our talking points, right? And we're afraid to say, answer the tough questions. And it sounds like you guys are taking that on. So that's, that's incredible. We're really trying. And if you don't mind, and I promise I'll make my answers briefer, but there was another experience during the discussion we had on career development where I think a lot of employees believe in these sort of urban myths of what you need to do to get promoted. And in one of, you have to do this job, you have to go to this location, you have to do these things in this sequential order. We've been trying to make sure people understand our selection processes and how people are picked for jobs, whether they're in their um, job function or in a different job function or it's an expatriate assignment. We had a session explaining to the workforce how we do this. And we let them ask questions in this young man asked a question, and I don't remember the details of the question, but whatever, he was making a declarative statement of, I need to do this, this, and this, and this to become a general manager. One of my guests, who was very deeply connected with the talent management process we were talking about, turned around and looked at him, and he said, who told you that? 
He said, that is just simply not true. And so your point about being honest and open and not scripted, we are doing that. And it's been a pretty fascinating avenue for us to do a variety of different things that I think have a positive impact on our culture. Well, especially the size of Chevron, you've got to be creative, right? And it sounds like you're building different pockets of culture and just being very transparent with that. So it's a really, really cool story. Thank you. The next question I was going to ask you was, if you take a calculated risk, you typically have to bring along your stakeholders. I think most HR leaders would agree with that. I know you've got a great relationship with your CEO, so you sometimes can maybe take some calculated risk without getting approval or buy-in, but most HR people have to really get that buy-in from their leaders in, in business in general. How do you recommend HR leaders go about really understanding, getting buy-in and, and bringing people along to some of these really more progressive and interesting ideas? I am a firm believer in deeply understanding the culture in which you operate because the culture, there's connectivity between culture and what you can and can't do. I spend a lot of time with peers of mine talking about, especially the pandemic brought a lot of future results really closer together because we were all struggling in many cases with the same things. Do you mandate vaccines or not mandate vaccines as an example? And as I listen to peers of mine in, in large multinational companies of the size and scale of ours or even smaller companies, I listen pretty deeply and I think about whether or not I could do that in Chevron or I could not. There are things in our company I know we could never do. And there are things in our company I know some other companies can't do. Simple example, and I hate to keep going back to this television show. I work for a big company. We have a production studio. We can do that. Everybody doesn't have that. So in some cases, that's really not a good example, because if you don't have the resources available to pull off something like that, it's not viable. However, in terms of bringing stakeholders along before you do that, you have to understand whether or not you are capable of successfully executing whatever the risk you're taking actually is. Because in some cases, it's just never going to work. And it has nothing to do with how good or bad a salesperson you are. It's because the culture will reject it. Understanding what your culture will accept and how I was talking to our CEO last Monday and I reminded him of some feedback he gave me many years ago. And I said, this is most favorite feedback he's given me as long as I've known you. And he said, what is that? And I said, you told me you push things right to the edge, just right to the edge. There's no space left. And I took that as a compliment. I don't know if he meant it as a compliment, but I did. But the only way I can do that is I deeply understand the company, the culture, and our leaders. Well, I like that you're pushing it right to the edge. I think that is a compliment. I agree. But I think you also have to have a really good relationship and you have to be able to build and maintain relationships, especially be successful, I think, as a CHRO. Talk to us a little bit about how you've approached building relationships over your career and how this has enabled your success. Relationships matter almost more than anything. People need to know that you care about them. And I care deeply about our company. I care deeply about our culture. I care the most about our people. And I think they know that. Because they know that, that gives you an opportunity to have open, honest, candid discussions about name a topic. It allows you to talk about things that are difficult. And I mentioned, I'm really lucky. I have a just absolutely stellar group of direct reports who tell me the truth. And I think part of the relationship building is having people really who aren't afraid to tell you the truth, especially 
And I'm not talking about, Rhonda, you're so wonderful. It's the bad news. Or I have another direct report. He's given me permission to share this story because I thought it was so powerful. During the pandemic, he was helping me work on a board presentation. And around 6 a.m., he sent me an email that said, I can't do this. I'm overloaded. I have all these things going on. And he copied one of his peers. He said, I know the level and quality and caliber of work you're expecting. I can't deliver that. But I asked his peer to help me. And the peer wrote back immediately, I'm on it all over it. Got it. And I was thinking about this. And I happened to drive to work that day because, again, this is during the pandemic. And I thought, how much courage does it have to take to write to your boss and say you can't do something. I take that as having an incredibly strong relationship with someone who knew before writing a very difficult message that that was okay and there would be no, I can't think of a more elegant way to say it, there'd be no performance punishment for being honest. Yeah, I think that's a great story and I'm happy they they said you could share that because I think it shows the relationship he has to know that it's better to say, I'm not going to be able to deliver the expectation and not be punished for that versus delivering a subpar product that really speaks a lot to your leadership and the relationship you built. And kudos to them for actually having someone else to pick the work up and have a solution to the problem. You practice something called other thinking. Tell us more about what this means and, and why it's so helpful to you. Other thinking is not original thought on my part. I learned this from one of our leaders who sadly passed away earlier this year, years ago. So my husband worked for Chevron for a long time up until I got this job. And so we got married in our 30s. By the time we got married, we had a lot of friends with a lot of small kids. We sat down and made a list and a whole bunch of our friends had married with a lot lot of weddings. We made a list of everything we didn't like about every wedding we had ever gone to. And one of them was not having children at your wedding. And so we had 200 people at our wedding. 40 of them were under 12 years old. So I was talking to my friend Dave about this, and we rented a room just for the kids. And they had their own food. They had a balloon artist. They had a magician. They had toys to play. We hired like three or four babysitters. And they had a little name tag like that would say, I'm Erica Morris, daughter of Rhonda and Jack, who are at table 12. So if they wanted to go see their parent, they could go into the room where our reception was, or the parent could come in and see them. But what we didn't want, we didn't want our friends not to come to our wedding because they were afraid of their kids making noise or being disruptive. We wanted the kids to have fun, we wanted their parents to have fun. So my friend Dave looked at me and he said, that is an example of other thinking, of thinking about what is the experience of the other person going to be like. I think that is transferable to pretty much anything we do. I talked earlier about the benefit of having been a customer of HR and having now the perspective of what is the impact of what we're doing on any business leader or quote customer of our function. I also firmly believe that the onus and burden of understanding the effectiveness of one's communication is on the person delivering the message because you have to test for understanding. And I have, especially now, because people are so distracted, I always ask, is what I'm saying clear? And that gives someone the opportunity to say, no, I don't understand what you're talking about. Because in a lot of cases, nobody's going to raise their hand and go, I have no idea what you're talking about. 
But if you ask them, you open the door for them to do that. And sometimes I will ask people to repeat back what I said just to make sure what I said was heard correctly. In many cases, you'd be surprised if you just simply ask someone to repeat it back what went through their brain and what comes out is not what you meant. So it creates an opportunity to make sure that you have alignment on the words you used, what you said, what they heard. Because if those things are misaligned, that's how people get a bit crosswise sometimes or they're it could lead to further misunderstanding. So I try to do that more and more frequently and not in a way that makes someone think that I don't think they're smart and they don't understand. It's just like, are we on the same page? What I love about that too is that you know, you're checking for understanding. You want to make sure that you're being clear in some ways. Did you hear it the right way? Want to help make sure you understand. And I think a lot of times as we communicate, we sort of do kind of put back in their person. Well, why do they understand us? And I love that the other thinking is, no, hey, making sure that they understand it's on us to make sure they actually get it and that the message was delivered properly. So I know you didn't come up with other thinking, but I believe a lot of people are going to start giving other thinking to Rhonda Morris after this conversation. So I really like that. I think it'll stick with me. So Rhonda, the last question for you, you know it's coming. What is one word or phrase you believe will define the future of HR in the next five to 10 years? I couldn't come up with one word. I had like five. And I really, of all the things you and I talked about, this was really the hardest one. So I'm going to use one of the words to ask permission to not have a word or phrase. And that word is grace. As a function, we've got to have, give ourselves grace and grace to other people. The world is just so polarized and crazy right now. And a lot of these things are entering the workforce. So I think that's important. I think recognizing that the world's a grace, and then this is a different word, but sounds similar, is gray. People want black and white and clarity, and the world is becoming more increasingly gray, and you've got to figure out ways to navigate through that. Resilience. Things aren't going to work. Think about how everybody's struggling, at least, and I think this is being narrowed now to a U.S. problem of really encouraging your employees to comply with a hybrid work model. And what do you do if they're not? You've got to really think through kind of how do you address that. And then the last one, perspective. Because I think perspective is so important, especially I started with the polarization. feels like it's everywhere. It's just having the grace to understand a perspective that is different than the one you may, that you may have. I think those are great. And you're, it's all okay by me to have four words. So grace, gray, resilience, and perspective. Rhonda, thank you so much for being on the Future of HR podcast. It was brilliant to get to know you and to hear about your amazing career. I think we learned a lot today. So thank you so much again for being on the podcast. JP, thank you for having me and thank you for what you're doing. You're providing a great service to all of us. I share your podcast with my direct reports all the time. Thank you. It means a lot. It's an honor to be included. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Rhonda for sharing her insights on why HR needs to take more calculated risks. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you enjoyed this episode of Future of HR, be sure to subscribe, share our podcast with at least one other person, or even better, please leave a review on Apple or Spotify podcasts. 
This really helps us grow the podcast and helps with our mission of inspiring the next generation of HR leaders. We'll be back next week with Kent Jonasson and Steve Drotter, who are the co-founders of the Leadership Pipeline Institute, which is the official research institute and leading global provider of solutions based on the Leadership Pipeline books. It has been 20 years since the Leadership Pipeline book by Steve Drotter, Ram Charan, and Jim Noel came out, and it is still one of the best books on leadership development there is. Kent and Steve have been working to launch an updated version of the Leadership Pipeline book, and we're going to discuss what's new, what's more relevant than ever, and how HR leaders can leverage the principles in the book to build a leadership-powered company. You won't want to miss this great conversation with Kent and Steve. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.